Hello, good morning. My name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Um, today, we are recording a vestibular SIG podcast on the role of neuroplasticity, specifically what, how does neuroplasticity play a role in vestibular rehab. Um, today, we have two speakers to um, answer questions for us, Dr. Rick Klein-Daniel and Dr. Michael Schubert. I'll have them introduce uh, give a brief introduction about themselves. This is Rick, Rick you can go first. Okay. <laughs> this is Rick Clendaniel. I am a assistant professor in uh, the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Duke University. I received my PhD in behavioral neuroscience and did a postdoctoral fellowship with Dr. Susan Herdman and um, continue to see patients and do research on vestibular disorders. This is Michael Schubert. I'm a faculty member at the Department of Laryngology, uh, head and neck surgery at Johns Hopkins, and I uh, got my Ph.D. Uh, in uh, physical therapy from the University of Miami, and I came up to Johns Hopkins to study with Dr. Daniel to do a, a postdoctoral fellowship. And I currently uh, see patients uh, a couple of days a week, and I'm interested in um, uh, vestibulocular reflex adaptation in, in individuals that have uh, pathology affecting their inner ear. Okay. Um, so our first question, what do you really think is happening with adaptation and habituation training? Uh, patients are getting better. <laughs> um, how, how so? Yeah, how do you think those changes are taking place? Well, that's a really good question, and I don't think we have an answer to it at this point. Um, we know that you know, things like dynamic visual acuity improves um, post-training uh, with gaze stability exercises. We know their balance improves. We know their symptoms tend to decrease. Actual mechanisms, it's not really clear at this point whether the system is really adapting, uh, using compensatory strategies, or just learning how to deal with the symptoms better. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and and Rick published a paper uh, with some pilot data, but beginning to address this specifically, looking at if, if you if you give a group of individuals these adaptation exercises, vestibulo-ocular reflex adaptation exercises, which as you know are uh, gaze stability exercises, versus more habituation training, the idea that you're trying to provoke symptoms. Those folks did equally well on an outcome measure of gaze stability known as the dynamic visual acuity. So it suggests that, that in part, at least having folks move um, leads to some benefit uh, and leads yeah. to some improvement in both, in both how they see clearly during head motion and just generally how they feel. Okay, good. So what role do you feel neuroplasticity plays in this versus recovery on a cellular level in terms of recovery of vestibular reflexes? Well, we, yeah, that's another tough question. We, um, there's, you know, regarding actual recovery versus versus uh, neuroplasticity, it's, uh, it's probably a little bit of both that's actually going on. We do know that the actual end organ can physically recover. That's been well established based on the more uh, standard vestibular function tests that are done. So, so people, of course, do have natural recovery um, that occurs. We've tied in some of that natural recovery with some behavioral change, too. So, for example, we know that 
there is a there is a saccade that is is interjected during the head rotation in the direction of the deficient vestibulocular reflex that has been shown to be modifiable uh, relative to recovery of the VOR. So that is, we were fortunate enough, I guess, to to record the vestibulocular reflex both before, during, and after uh, one particular person had recovery of the end organ. And there was a less recruitment or less use of these compensatory saccades. Again, these saccades that sort of come in come in place when the vestibular system is deficient to assist gaze stability. So that there is this sort of dynamic interplay between recovery and uh, neuroplasticity that occurs. Yeah, I'd agree with Michael. It's um, it, it's really it's difficult to uh, with the uh, recording techniques we have in humans to figure out what, how much recovery is actually occurring at a cellular level because there's central compensations that that go on to make it difficult to figure out what's actually going on in the periphery. Um, but we see folks who um, initially have uh, an abnormal caloric test and weakness on one side and uh, typically with like things like the neuronitis, and then if you retest them and test the peripheral structures, with, again, with a caloric test, they have recovered and they, it, they no longer have a unilateral weakness. So there is some evidence for recovery in some individuals or cellular recovery, um, but without that, it's hard to figure out what's actually, what, you know, the improvements that we see in terms of function and decreased symptoms, whether that's central compensation or um, actual peripheral recovery. Okay. Um, I know when I'm prescribing vestibular adaptation exercises, the uh, guideline that I use is to expose my patients to five minutes of stimulus a day, and I feel like that's what it takes, or that's what I've been taught, what it takes to um, kind of get the VOR going again. So is that correct, or how much repetition is necessary to kind of induce those neuroplastic changes? Uh, more is better, uh, probably. Um, uh, I'm, I'm probably pretty much in the same boat as you, Rachel. I'd try to have folks do, let's say, gaze, if we're giving them gaze stability exercises, at least two minutes at a time, multiple times during the day. So I'm probably shooting for more than five minutes total during the day with specific exercises. Um, whether patients are completely compliant with that or not, we don't know. Um, it, you know it, two minutes seems to work. It seems to be reasonable for patients to be able to do that without provoking too many symptoms. Would longer be better? Probably so. We just don't have the studies that have uh, figured out appropriate dosages of these exercises yet. And I don't know, Michael, you might remember, it, it seems to me that you know, if you take a normal human and put them in a rotary chair with an adaptation paradigm to try and change the gain, within about five minutes or so, they start to demonstrate some changes in gain. Uh, that, do you remember? Exactly. Yeah, I do remember. I do. That's right. We've done it. We've done that, as you said, brick with both rotational chair. We've also done it with active head rotation, which, you know, a mirrors a little bit better what we ask our patients to do. So we've we've had people in a completely dark room and basically exposed them to a target that moves a little bit in the direction opposite of the head rotation. So it's trying to drive the, the gain of the vestibular ocular reflex up. And it happens very quickly. Uh, and it's and it's similar with the cat adaptation uh, that's been done. You know, you can put people in a unique context, so it's a bit isolated from that in that sense that it's not a 
not necessarily a real world experience, but the the system will change very quickly. Um, the challenge, of course, is getting that retention, getting it to stay. Yeah. And I think that that I would agree with both you know you, Rick, and Rachel that you know multiple times a day uh, is probably better. We we haven't really studied dosing specifically, so it is hard to know. Uh, we 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 have looked at sort of indirectly, but we've looked at changes in in dynamic visual acuity when exercises were done three times a day versus five times a day. Now they were separate studies, but the results were the same. So somewhere around there, you know, you're exposing people for multiple minutes, probably somewhere three, five, maybe more times per day is uh, is necessary. And again, as as you said, Rick, is there a plateau? Do people tap out? Is the response you know, sort of flat line at some point. We we don't know. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you know, it's not just do, when they're doing the gaze stability exercises that they're getting the um signals for adaptation. It's the the more they move around during the day, uh the more the more head movement signals and gaze stability signals they'll be receiving. So I think one of the things with therapy is you simply get them moving again and the system's gonna figure out how best to compensate for the movements and the deficiencies in the vestibular system. So Mm -hmm. And that actually leads perfectly into my next question. As a vestibular therapist, I see my role both as prescribing very specific uh, ocular motor and balance exercises and just more as kind of a coach and encourager and just, you know, encouraging people to get up and move in any way that they can and return back to normal activities. So when our patients get better, how much do you think of uh, them getting better is due to this, our prescribing specific exercises and how much is just due to us encouraging them to resume all their normal activities and move around? Uh, I don't know, to be honest with you. I think um, and there was a neurologist at Hopkins who for years would joke around saying they don't need rehab, they just need to play ping pong, which in some respects could be true. It's just if they move around, they try and work on gaze, you know, if they're playing ping pong, they have to have head movements, body movements, gaze stability, gaze fixation, things like that. And getting somebody to move will, should lead to improvements in theory. Um, I don't know that just having people be active, though, without doing specific exercises will be beneficial uh, because they may, they may get better, but they may not achieve um, their highest level of recovery. And I mean, as a, a case example, there was one person in the pilot say that Michael was talking about before who um, got better on all measures with the intervention. Uh, he had decreases in his dynamic hand, uh, yeah, dizziness handicap inventory, improved dynamic gait index, improved balance, et cetera, decreased in his motion sensitivity, yet his dynamic visual acuity did not improve. And he felt he was much better, but he and he was functioning at a higher level, but he wasn't as improved as we would have liked to have seen on uh, measures of dynamic visual acuity. Yeah, I think I think um, it's tough to know. You know, there's there's different strategies people people adopt. So it may be that someone will report that they're feeling better just by starting to move around in general activity, but their head rotation is less, and uh, you know they're not moving as quickly. And or they're not turning their head much when they walk, for example. Um, Susan Herdman did a couple of studies that that were controlled as far as the types of exercises that were 
that folks were exposed to and um, and whether both groups were were compliant or not. So there was a group that sort of did some eye-only eye exercises, so a saccade or smooth pursuit, and then there was a group that did these gaze stability exercises. And she showed in both individuals with, with unilateral uh, and bilateral vestibular hypofunction that dynamic visual acuity was improved only in those folks that did the specific gaze stability exercise. That goes back to what Rick said, which is I think there there is a role for specific exercise in here. There's no doubt that general activity also is, is going to be useful, but when it comes down to the unique contributions of the system, whatever system is you're trying to change, I, I think that body changes and adapts uniquely to the stressors put through it. So I think people will get better when they're generally moving, but there, there is a role for more specific intervention. And I also find, especially my patients who are a little bit more anxious and maybe restrict their daily activity more than they should, that I use the exercises to give them confidence to return back to activities. You know, for example, if I have a patient who's able to do a VOR times one when they're walking forwards, but yet they're afraid to walk out of them, their um, houses by themselves, you know, I can use that and say, look, you can, you know, in here you're able to walk and hold your balance and turn your head very quickly. You know, you should definitely be able to walk around in the community without turning your head at all or, you know, with just normal head turns. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, is there any way, you know, that we can clinically evaluate if neuroplasticity has taken place? I guess. <laughs> How are you defining neuroplasticity? Yeah. Um, that we're actually, you know, inducing changes in the brain, whether growing of, you know, new synapses or any of those processes. Uh, Michael, I was waiting for you to chime in on this one. Yeah, I, that's, this is another tough one, Rachel. You know, I, I think it, it does depend on how you define it. Um, you know, we know uh, that there there are changes that occur in animal models at the brainstem and at the cerebellum when you when you expose these animals to VOR gain change. So if you change the gain up or you change the gain down, things happen in the brain, and that's been recorded. We can't do that in people, uh, obviously, but we can take pictures of the brain, and there are other systems that have been studied that show that the brain does change. You know, for example, some constraint-induced therapy, um, sort of before and after. So um, clinically, though, so I guess, sorry, I, I think that yes, you can you can use some. There are ways to identify neuroplasticity. It's sort of a broad term, uh, but. You know, clinically, I think if you look at dynamic visual acuity and that changes, that is evidence that there's change in the neural axis at some point. Uh, similar with balance. Now, balance can improve for different reasons. There's, of course, there's multiple contributors for balance. But I don't think we need to take those clinical measures for granted. They're valuable and that we are looking at change in, in, neural, in, in neural processes. Now, what yeah. is that neural process for change? Is it VOR gain, is it a, a better, is it central nervous system processes, is it, is it the 
cerebellum, you know, releasing some inhibition on the central nuclei a little bit better. It's probably a combination of those things. Is, is, it's hard for us to sort that out. But I think our clinical measures can, are measuring neuroplasticity, exactly how that plasticity is, is occurring or what, what is the mechanism behind the change in those clinical measures. That, that is really tough. And probably where we're, where we're headed, I think, is, is doing some imaging studies. You know, it would be, be neat to, for example, induce a change in gain of the VOR and then take pictures of certain regions in the brain, either with functional MRI or some other measure, maybe transcranial magnetic stem, and try to figure out what, what really is happening uh, in humans when that occurs, and then matching that with the behavioral change that we saw, and that would give us a sense maybe of more of the mechanisms behind the clinical change. Yeah. So, again, with the, you can use dynamic visual acuity as a measure of change. The thing that, as we said before, the thing that you can't, you don't know without recording the eye movements is whether that improvement is because the gain of the VOR is actually improving or whether the person is making uh, these compensatory saccades during the head movement or a combination of the two. Uh, you could argue that even if the gain of the VOR is not improving but the person is adopting compensatory strategies, that that, is, that too is a measure of neuroplasticity or, or is a form of neuroplasticity from a systems level to allow you to maintain or to improve your gaze stability during head movement. So, again, you're a little – I agree with Michael. I wouldn't discount the clinical measures that we use. Um, they can't answer – all the questions as to what's actually going on, though. And definitely, you know, it's important for all therapists is, you know, our patients are improving whether they're actually making changes or they're making these compensatory saccade movements as long as they're able to be uh, functional and go back mm -hmm. to their everyday activities. That, of course, is our first and foremost goal. Um, right. In terms of the speed of the VOR exercises, I usually train my patients up to about 120 hertz. That's the goal um, for frequency of head movements during VOR. Is there any benefit to varying the speed, or do I need to be training at a faster speed? Well, 120 uh, hertz is really yeah. fast. Probably meant um, maybe a degree. Oh, I'm sorry, two, 2 hertz, 120 beats per second. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the th one thing to keep in mind is that frequency of normal head movements when you're doing things like walking and running are above two cycles per second. So uh, we typically test at two cycles per second, um, but that's mainly because you want to make sure that they're not able to use smooth pursuit to maintain gaze stability when you're doing like dynamic visual acuity testing. Um, so I, just, I don't usually, personally I don't track how fast they're moving their head uh, when they're doing the exercise. I just want them to continually try to move faster and faster, um, still maintaining uh, the visual target, or you know, a clear view of the visual target, so they're not getting visual blurring or, or jumping or ophthalmia. Um, and then I just kind of go uh, judge based on how they do with the DVA test and how they're doing with symptoms as to whether they need to continue or move faster with their their head movement. So I, I haven't been in the practice of you know counting how many cycles they, or how many repetitions they make within a minute or two minute time frame. I agree. I, I think this is, and this is where physical therapists, where we're really good at. You know, this is a, the, meaning we're, we have this. We're good at creating challenging exercises 
you know, to achieve these different results. So I, I, I'm similar. I'll teach folks to do the gaze stability exercises and, and, and encourage them that that they try to move their head, you know, faster depending on the clarity of the target, and that's gonna gonna progress at some rate. And I'm not necessarily concerned about how fast they can move it, but then. I change it into more functional activity. Let's do it now while you're doing this activity. There's other parts of gaze stability, such as the uh, the gaze shifting exercise with two targets, where that's more of a rapid head impulsive rotation. So I think you'll end up by incorporating function as part of the re of the rehab that there is sort of this broad broader spectrum of of, of head motion. I mean, Rick has done some really neat studies showing that the VOR actually does adapt uniquely to the um, the stimulus that that you impart it when you're training. Uh, that's a little bit harder behaviorally in people and 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 functionally to try to parse out, but there is this specificity within the system. Um, I'm not sure how you do that clinically, other than just encourage folks to continue to move their head and see targets clearly and then broaden that application. At least it, uh, I guess this leads very well into the next question. When I typically give the OR exercises, I have patients do it in a neutral neck uh, flexion position, so with their heads straight. Will that improve their VOR abilities, for example, with their heads extended or with their um, heads flexed? It should. Um, you're, you know, in both in the matter whether the neck is neutral, uh, extended, or flexed, most of it, if you're working on VOR exercises, the horizontal head rotation, you're still going to get basically the same rotation, the same stimulus to the canals, whether the head's, regardless of the head position on the body or in space. Now, you will change the otolith input, obviously, or the the kind of the tonic that'll have input when you have the head tilted one direction or another. So, as Michael was saying, you can have these specificity of training effects. So if you only and you can you can mess around with the vestibular system or the central nervous system as much as you want. So you can we've done these things typically with um, well with VOR training as well as SCAD training where you adapt into in um, one condition in one direction you adapt the other. So gain up condition with your head tilted back, gain down condition with your head tilted down, or even just looking down, and and the system will learn to use those otolith signals in that case to pull out the right gain for the VOR. But I think in a normal in a patient, um, if you adapt the gain with a neck in neutral, it it should have carryover with uh, to gain changes or to changes to measures of gain um, with the neck extended and flexed. I don't think you will see that much difference between the two, unless you set it up experimentally to do that. Yeah, and I, and I think also this goes back to an earlier point that I think Rick made, which was that, that, that you know, these patients, our patients are getting retinal slip exposure throughout their day um, when they're not doing the exercises we ask them to. If, if they are moving their head, um, which they will be if they're walking. So, you know, that, that there will be Again, this error signal that drives the change, they, they should be getting um, in addition to the exercises that have been prescribed, and that should help them as well. Um, and our last question for the day, and I feel like this is, um, you know, could be a complicated question. It could probably take a whole day to answer, um, but to do, do your best to answer. 
why do you think that some people get better with the same uh, vestibular diagnosis and the same symptoms while others do not? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's so hard for me to learn a certain pattern on the drum kit when others can can learn it easier. And you're right, this is this is tough. I, another thing is, you know, I see folks that have, for example, positional vertigo. I've seen a handful of folks who have classic posterior canal uh, canalithiasis on one side. They feel nothing, and their chief complaint has been sometimes just imbalance. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit of lightheaded spaceness, but there's no spinning sensation. And frankly, when they're in the position, they, they sometimes will say, "Yeah, I feel a little bit of something. It's not that, it's not that, that bad though." And other times, of course, and I imagine everybody's had, you all have had this experience as well. That there's a little bit of nystagmus, and there's this, you know, very robust response. Um, I think you know it's partially related to. Uh, the brain and how the brain, uh, you know, how we have different uh, compensatory strategies that are used, how we perceive the world uniquely um, that is responsible for this broad sort of spectrum that we see in folks. Yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer. Um, and I know Susan Herman's doing a lot of work in this area or continues to do work in this area. Um, and a recent paper she had published showed that you know, people will get better, but not universally so across all different measures. So some people will get better on psychological measures or, or you know, measures of symptoms and not necessarily show improvements in physical performance or vice versa. And some people show no improvements and some people show improvements across the board. Um, obviously, if there are or maybe not obviously, but um, I think if there are other things that are going on with the individual, if there are other central nervous system issues going on, um, if they have other medical issues, I think that can affect the recovery process. Uh, I think stress plays a huge role in how well people compensate, and that stress can be either physical or emotional stress. Um, but, yeah, we see folks, and I'm sure you've seen them as well, who by, by all appearances are okay except for the fact that they have a vestibular neuronitis or or bilateral vestibular loss or whatever, and we expect them to get better, and they don't, and that's the big question as to why not, and is there something else going on that we're missing? Um, yeah, and, and something else, too, that's been shown is that, you know, a, a patient's perception of the the level of disability that they have has been shown to contribute to how disabling their symptoms actually are. So those folks mm -hmm. that perceive that they're generally healthy tend to do better than, than those on certain measures, even though they may have more evidence of damage. So they might have a vestibular system that has a lower gain on some sort of outcome measure, but their perception of health is higher and so they're not bothered by as much oscillopsy, for example, as someone who would have a better gain, um, but their perception of their health is not as high, and so they are uh, more disabled by the symptom. Um, and so, again, whether it's the adrenal stress hormones, whether it's, you know, just just some personality, uh, physical stress, emotional stress is as uh, Rick mentioned, 
those all are probably very important in compensation and, and getting better. And, and I oh, no, go ahead, Rick. Um, so two other things. One is that um, although I don't think you know, the, the length of time the person's had the unilateral vestibular loss is a huge issue. Um, there's a paper uh, published by Neil Shepard, Steve Tellian, and others a number of years ago, and they looked at people with chronic vestibular disorders, and they found that people who had been, I think, like off work for, or had to change their jobs for six months or more uh, were less likely to get better uh, than or to show improvements with therapy than folks who had not been off work for that long or had to, you know, that disabled for that long. Um, and the other thing we've seen down here, and this has not been, to my knowledge, they haven't written it up anywhere, but we've seen a number of folks with uh, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, so they're getting a unilateral vestibular loss as a result of that, and everything's stable. You know, they're not having any fluctuating symptoms or anything like that, but they just don't compensate. Um, and they've actually gone in and done spinal taps on these individuals and found some more some markers of central abnormality. So that some of these things that we think are you know, peripheral vestibular nerve damage may actually have more central nervous system effects than we recognize, and that could be a compounding factor to the recovery process. Yeah, and we all so know that these disorders can be, um, you know, very difficult from a differential diagnosis standpoint. Right. Uh, so maybe yeah. a patient, you know, we think who has vestibular neuritis, you know, has Ramsey Hunt or another disorder, making it more yeah. difficult to recover. Yeah. Um, yeah and I then, definitely... Again, if it, if there's any fluctuation in their symptoms um, not related to movements or position changes, any sporadic or spontaneous fluctuations of the system is really not that is not as stable as we think it is, that is going to affect the, their ability to compensate as well. And I, and I definitely agree with both of you gentlemen in terms of that I think the psychological factor definitely plays a big role in recovery from these symptoms. Um, and I think vestibular therapists do a really good job recognizing this and treating this and trying to you know, mitigate the psychological factors as much as possible. And I certainly think um, a lot of other therapists could learn from our techniques in that realm in terms of treating patients with other disorders that cause psychological stress. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, I think you gentlemen did a great job answering some very, very difficult questions, and I think there's a lot of good information um, that therapists can take into play and use to help treat their patients a little bit better. So both Rick and Michael, I thank you very much for joining me this morning. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Okay, thank you, and take care. All right. Bye-bye.